0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From
1: WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield.
2: What you're seeing on your screen right now, exclusive images showing Julian Assange being carried out of the
3: Ecuadorian embassy after his arrest.
1: Now, there's an image for you. Julian Assange, WikiLeaker, fugitive, slayer of dragons and self-described shiner of light into the dark recesses of government power, being carried bodily from his former refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London.
4: Police have confirmed he's being held on behalf of U.S. authorities.
1: And now he's facing prosecution for allegedly trying to help imprisoned leaker Chelsea Manning crack a government password – conspiracy to commit breaking and entering, basically. So the humiliating eviction isn't the end of the Assange story. But that's not all it isn't. It also, most likely, isn't a blow to the free press, despite the immediate hand-wringing. It's a very serious assault on the First Amendment, a clear attempt to rescind the freedom of the press, essentially.
3: Every journalist in the world should be raising their voice as loudly as possible to protest and denounce this.
1: The press is indeed under attack in this country, but not in this case, because WikiLeaks is not and has never been the press. Journalism reports or opines on events or phenomena along with history, context, multiple viewpoints, and potential consequences. Wikileaks gets hold of information and dumps it indiscriminately, absent context, absent motive, and certainly absent thorough reckoning of consequences. This Assange himself told me a decade ago.
3: Wikileaks is not a normal news organization. We are a public service to whistleblowers who are trying to get their messages out. Our judgment would be a form of censorship of those
1: whistleblowers. He could have left out the word normal. He didn't run a news organization at all, any more than El Chapo ran a pharmacy. He's more like a fence, a broker of stolen property, which property is admittedly sometimes of legitimate and even priceless public interest, but sometimes just loot. That's precisely why judgment is not censorship. Judgment is judgment, weighing not just journalistic value, but also the sources, motives, the context for the leaked information, and most of all, Benefit versus risk. It's why, most canonically, journalists never report on troop movements in time of war, because it immediately endangers lives, a standard that doesn't impress Julian Assange, who postures as a transparency absolutist.
3: You either believe in a free press or you don't. And if you do, then people should act like it. And uh, we act like it because we do
1: thing is press freedom defined under u.s law and best practices doesn't permit libel or extortion or by the way burglary digital or otherwise with journalistic freedom comes journalistic responsibility and assange explicitly disclaims that at least where other people are concerned while he preaches that all information no matter its sources or dangers is better public than secret His own organization is shrouded in secrecy.
3: If too much is known about the journalists that are working with us, their telephone can be tapped and monitored, and sources that are communicating with them can be monitored. The results of a slip-up on our behalf could be fatal to some of the people that we work with. So... We're very cautious to make sure that people can't get at our sources by obtaining our telecommunications records.
1: Can't argue with that at all. But do note the double standard. I mean, you're either for exposing secrets or you're not, right? Now, in one of the more thoughtful red flags raised about the Assange prosecution, Washington Post columnist Margaret Sullivan observes that the encryption technology Assange is accused of abusing to hide his alleged conspiracy with Manning is a standard tool of real journalists. If he's prosecuted for using encryption software to communicate with a whistleblower, won't, say, Scott Shane of the New York Times face the same threat? This is the dangerous precedent argument. But does it really hold up? The charges, after all, aren't about the encryption tool. They're about the password-breaking scheme it obscured. Lizzie Borden was prosecuted for axe-murdering her mother. That triggered no alarm in the lumberjack community. The prosecution of Julian Assange is not an attack on the press. It doesn't necessarily even pose a threat to WikiLeaks, which would be forever invaluable if only it were more journalistic in its approach. What this case is about is one man deciding that the ends justified the means. And me, I look forward to his day in court. Coming up... It's light-bending, it's mind-bending, and it's a matter of extreme gravity. A black hole in living color. This is On The Media.
5: So here's something I bet every On The Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of The United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get The United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts.
1: This is On The Media, I'm Bob Garfield. Imagine the paparazzi closing in on the biggest star in the universe. No, even bigger, much bigger than the biggest star. In April of
5: 2017, all the dishes in the Event Horizon Telescope swiveled, turned, and stared at a galaxy 55 million light years away.
1: That was Harvard astrophysicist Shepard Dolman at a press conference Wednesday for the National Science Foundation preparing the audience for the money shot.
5: And we are delighted to be able to report to you today that we have seen what we thought was unseeable. We have seen and taken a picture of a black hole.
1: An image of the densest of celestial objects, hitherto only imagined because its gravitational pull is so vast that not even light can escape its grip. Yet there it is in living color with the light at the very frontiers of its gravity field literally bent around its massive invisible self to define its contours. If we're being honest, it looked like a fuzzy glowing cosmic bagel. But to a scientist's eye,
4: you know, I really had a bit of a wow moment when I saw it. That's Priya
1: Natarajan, professor of astronomy and physics at Yale University, who saw not a bagel, but a revelation in the tradition of Galileo destined to reframe our sense of the universe.
4: Galileo was a pioneer in the sense, right? He, through the telescope, he looked at the moon and he recorded it. So for the first time, you just didn't have a fleeting memory of an object that you saw, but you had a record of it.
1: I want to ask you about this whole notion of a material image shifting our perspective. In 1968, one of the Apollo astronauts, William Anders, was in the spacecraft orbiting the moon, and he snapped a picture. It captured the gray horizon of the moon in the foreground, and in the sky hovers the blue and white planet Earth itself. What was the impact of this photo that came to be called Earthrise?
4: It was the first time that we were able to see the earth without being on the earth. And it made us realize how vulnerable we are. We are all inhabiting this little blue marble that is sort of suspended in the darkness of space. I often say that it sort of brought home, I think, the sense of how significant and insignificant we are as human beings. It's significant because we develop the technology and the possibility to do this. Whereas we are insignificant because it kind of brings into sharper focus that, gosh, space is littered with a lot of rocks. (laughs) We just happen to be one. So it's a very emotional moment. It generated a sense of cosmic responsibility and a collective sense of cosmic responsibility.
1: Here's some tape of Buckminster Fuller, the philosopher, mathematician, thinker, creator of the Geodesic Dome.
0: People say to me, I wonder what it would be like to be on a spaceship. And I say to you, you don't really realize what you're doing (laughs) because everybody is an astronaut. You all live aboard a beautiful little spaceship called Earth. I want to ask
1: you about the Hubble telescope, which has Mm -hmm. yielded this vast trove of images. Uh, Here was ABC's Peter Jennings in 1990 talking about sending that satellite into space.
0: Tonight, finally, the space shuttle Discovery is in orbit in its cargo bay waiting to be put into its own orbit, a telescope so powerful it can see a dime 25 miles away an instrument bound to contribute to a reassessment of the universe. Now,
1: the images that it would retrieve, including the pillars of creation photos of the Eagle Nebula, they are jaw-dropping. But do they fit into this conversation we're having? Because they're also kind of like abstract expressionists. You know, they look like, oh, I don't know, illuminated gases, not like the moon.
4: Right. So all these Hubble Space Telescope images are taken in different wavelengths, and then they're combined, and they're rendered in color. So they do represent very faithfully what is really there, actually. So, for example, one of the most recent iconic images from the Hubble has been, you know, a very, very deep look at this set of objects, like six objects called clusters of galaxies. There are about a 1,000 galaxies held together by the gravity of dark matter. And you know that because you see a lot of light bending, just as we saw the extreme light bending around the black hole. So, you know, the Hubble has played a very important role. But also it spoiled us with these incredible images because, as I said, the optical has a very strong pull. It's an evolutionary impulse because that's what we can really sense.
1: We discussed the fuzziness of the image. It could be a black hole, you know, or it could be an out-of-focus bagel. Do you expect this image that gave you such an emotional response to be the latest in a series of iconic images that reframe human understanding of the cosmos? Or, in this world of rampant anti-science sentiment, just fodder for the next imbecilic meme in the culture wars?
4: The rampant denialism of science now is extremely disturbing. And I personally believe that one cause for that is the fact that the public does not understand the process of science. So I think the press conference where, you know, there was a very nice exposition of how things work, how they actually design the project, how they got it to work, what they did in order to produce this image. Sort of demystifying this process, I think, is really what is needed. And they convey the provisionality of science. Anything that we know is the best to date. It's apt to change if we have more data, better data, more evidence. And I think part of the problem is, you know, you have a lot of studies that are very poorly done. So, you know, they say, well, coffee is good for you. And then You know, a month later, coffee's suddenly bad for you. And and these are just statistically not significant studies. So you have a lot of not-so-great science out there that is being fed to the public. And I think that confuses the public because they don't know how to calibrate. But I think something like this, I think it can be reset because, as I told you, I'm an optimist. That's what I'm hoping.
1: One last question. This whole conversation has been premised on the idea that a tangible evidence of the cosmos— helps us as humans frame our place in the universe, frame our very humanity. Mm -hmm. As we begin to document dark matter and black holes, things that are unseeable and in many ways unknowable, how do you think that will change our own narrative of humanity?
4: What it really reveals is the power of the framework of science that we have developed, this way of making sense of reality using data and evidence. that this, It's quite remarkable, right? Because we have a brain that's basically the size of a cantaloupe, and we're able to figure all of this stuff about the universe. So I think this is a revelation and a moment to take stock of what all we are capable of. And I think that touches everybody, not just scientists.
1: Priya, thank you very much.
4: Thank you so much.
1: Priya Natarajan is a professor of astronomy and physics at Yale University. The black hole image may indeed be so profound as to alter humanity's relationship with the cosmos, but not all of humanity. In a world where everything is politicized, there is nothing too empirical to be doubted, like crowd size or mass murder or the solar system. I'm going to zoom in on the Earth
4: in Photoshop, and I'm going to bring the levels up. Uh Uh-oh. Why is there a square box around the Earth allegedly taken from the scientists on the moon in Apollo 17? And people wonder
1: why I don't trust NASA. These guys are liars. That clip, taken from a video called True World, is one of thousands detailing the flat-earth conspiracy theory, the belief that somehow, for some reason, NASA and other institutions have orchestrated a big lie of epic proportions. I don't acknowledge that other planets are planets. We don't live on a planet. We live on a plane. What we see in the sky are just little lights. I tried to compare it to The Truman Show. You know, The Truman Show was just a giant Hollywood stage 20 miles wide. If you built a a stage that was a thousand miles wide, how many people could you fool besides just Truman? Once an utterly fringe belief, the flat earth theory is now a fringe belief, inflated by media exposure. Even the exposure from those saying how idiotic it is. For instance, this news flash from Bill Nye, the science guy. Is the earth flat or round? It's round, okay? More problematic, though, is the work of YouTube star Logan Paul, who has racked up 19 million subscribers and millions of dollars, contriving to generate clicks. Now he's taking on the Flat Earthers in a mockumentary called Flat Earth to the Edge and Back, for which he pretended to be one of them in order, he says, to satirize their beliefs. I'm not ashamed to say my name is Logan Paul and I... I think I'm coming
5: out of the flat earth closet.
1: It's not only a journey into the obvious, it turns out to be pumping oxygen into the very conspiracy filter bubbles he purports to want to burst, which maybe was the plan all along. Madison Malone-Kircher has reported on Paul's tumultuous career for New York Magazine, and she joins us now. Madison, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell me the story of this satirical documentary.
2: Sure. So it was shot a year ago at a a major Flat Earth convention in Denver. Logan Paul signs up to attend. The man running the convention notices Logan's name on the list.
1: When I looked at the name, I said, wait a minute, I think I recognize this name. And it seemed like someone was on a journey. He had been looking into this. He was open-minded. He was willing to put his name out there. And say, hey, man, I want to come. I want to learn.
2: And coordinates with Logan and gets him to give a keynote speech, which is sort of the center of this documentary. The plot of it rotates around Logan's love life. He meets a woman at the conference who is a flat earther. The only reason people yeah. like yeah. think that it's round is because like the shape of your eyes. round uh, and uh, Say that it's
6: straight. Oh, uh, yeah. oh. Yeah.
2: And falls madly in love with her, and their love couldn't possibly blossom if he also did not fully believe this. Yeah. He's smitten. He's
6: smitten as hell, dude. He really is,
2: dude. By the end of the film, he discovers that the friend who initially told him about flat-earth conspiracy theories no longer believes them. <laughs> I'm going to kill you! They have a drag-out brawl in a parking lot. It is totally ridiculous. It comes completely off the rails. And one thing is totally clear. Logan Paul, not a flat-earther.
1: Okay. Now, it's sort of a Sasha Baron Cohen-esque approach, minus the genius. He infiltrates these people in order to ridicule them mainly for an audience of 19 million teenagers, this is where I gather the law of unintended consequences might kick in.
2: We got this documentary that normalizes this flat-earth hoax to a very broad audience, you know, those 18, 19 million subscribers of his that are teenagers. Those are just the people who want to be updated every time that Paul posts a video. That doesn't account for the millions of other people out there who will now stumble across this mockumentary through YouTube's algorithm.
1: Is Paul trading here on the very lunacy he purports to debunk? I mean, was that his business plan?
2: Absolutely. Logan Paul does nothing with unintended consequences. His most infamous act to date was vlogging an apparent suicide victim he found hanging in a forest in Japan. Social media star Logan Paul apologized this week for posting a video to YouTube showing the body of an apparent suicide victim. And he made it sound as though that was was something he felt he just had to do because he stumbled across this video and he didn't think better of it that's, you know, to my mind, absolutely untrue. He knew what he was doing. He knew what that headline would mean for his clicks, and he did it anyway. And that's exactly what we're seeing again with this Flat Earth documentary.
1: If I weren't already skeptical about his motives, here he comes this week on his podcast. It's going to be good. I like it.
4: Very good vibe here.
1: Alex
0: Jones. Alex Jones. Very
4: nice. What's Is that the, what you expected? I don't know what to expect. Uh, I mean, I just know
1: that you guys are super popular. I've been hearing about you for years. And I've seen how He's got him. Alex Jones for two hours. Did Paul call him a liar? Did he call him a menace? Did he hold his feet to the fire? Was there anything about this that shed light on Alex Jones, Alex Jonesness?
2: It's interesting because the first 15 minutes of this two-hour video with Logan Paul and his two co-hosts and Alex Jones, it really does seem like they're going to put in a good faith effort to to hold Alex Jones accountable, to ask him tough questions, to try and have a logical conversation with him.
4: And because we've been lied to about WMDs,
1: we've been lied to about so many things, people just get to where they have to question everything.
5: I agree, question everything, but at what point are you questioning everything and not accepting fact? You've uh, alluded to it in the past, especially with the Sandy Hook thing. Oh, there's which no is- doubt.
2: Absolutely. Alex Jones says something about how the majority of people online were spewing the same sorts of hoaxes about the Sandy Hook shooting that he was. And, and Logan Paul says something to the effect of, you know, I'm online just like you are. I don't think it was the majority of people, Alex. I think it was just the loudest people. And in that moment, it seems like, OK, these these guys did their homework. They, they knew what they were getting into. But it... It quickly devolves.
1: The chemtrails, the human-animal hybrids they admit are going on, uh, the fact that cancer rates are up 3,000-plus percent, the fact that autism is up 30-plus thousand percent, the fact that all this real crap's going on, man.
2: Once they get onto the Sandy Hook topic, Logan Paul basically says, you know, Alex, I just want you to know for the for the rest of this, this piece going forward, I, I forgive you and I believe you deserve a second chance to speak your mind. And this is a man who has had chance after chance after chance, platform after platform, one by one, removing him and still continued to peddle lies about dead first graders. This is not somebody who needs to be absolved in front of millions on the Internet.
1: Which gets back to this question of social media, uh, whatever it's intense, as a spreader of poison. But I guess we should observe that long before YouTube... Uh, the, the cable TV channels and premium services also did and ha- and still do a land office business in shows about cults and conspiracy theories and other wackadoodlery. There has never been a lot of hand-wringing about that stuff, making entertainment out of dangerous ideas. In focusing on the likes of Logan Paul and YouTube, am I guilty of the you kids get off of my lawn thinking and, you know, just because it's... A newfangled medium?
2: You are and you aren't, right? When you think about, you know, a Nightline special about a cult you might have watched sort of voraciously a decade ago, and I still might watch voraciously now, frankly. You finish watching that cult special, you go to bed, you think about it, maybe you read another newspaper article about it. You watch a cult YouTube video... You know, you're going to be served six more YouTube videos. You're going to find blogs. You're going to find tweets. You're going to wind up on 4chan threads. It just, there's an, an unending trough from which you can feed if you're interested. And that's the shift we've seen.
1: Now, YouTube claims it's beginning to address this problem, to demote conspiracy content in its recommendation algorithm. C- can you see this actually happening?
2: Yes and no. So today I was really interested when I woke up. Logan Paul dropped this video last night. And this morning I woke up and I immediately checked the YouTube trending page. And I was surprised not to see it there, given that we had two very contentious, big social media players teaming up for this podcast. Um, and obviously, I, I can't speak to that on the record. But to my mind, that's an indication that YouTube is has decided we will not be promoting this. You know, Logan Paul's viral videos, they usually wind up on the trending page. But more broadly, it's rolling out slowly and it's not completely effective yet. A a recent BuzzFeed study found that if you watch a nonpartisan political video, it takes maybe a half a dozen clicks before you are headed off into complete extremist land based solely on what YouTube recommends you watch.
1: Is this a problem that can be solved?
2: When we see places like YouTube making these big announcements that they're going to change and they're going to tweak their algorithms and they will no longer be recommending misinformation and content, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. YouTube executives didn't wake up one morning and think, yeah, we've made enough money, so I guess now we try and do the right thing enough average people, watchers, viewers, people at home have have started to piece together the potential dangers. You know, obviously there are a lot of benefits to the spread of information on YouTube and the scope and the pace at which it happens, but people are waking up to the potential dangers of that. I think the recent vaccine scares we're seeing across the country are a great example of this. That is what's moving the needle for YouTube. It's becoming fiscally untenable for them not to make these changes.
1: When there's money to be made by feeding people's worst impulses, is the solution ever on the horizon?
2: I mean, does the horizon even really exist? If I walk towards it, don't I just fall off or walk into a wall of ice? Like <laughs> think that's what the flat earthers think.
1: <laughs> Touche. But now you have to answer my question.
2: I fell off the face of the flat earth. <laughs> I'm falling. <laughs> I think it's just a 21st century version of the convergence of culture and capitalism we've seen forever. And I can only hope that people watching these videos at home are smart enough to ask the right questions and not questions about the shape of the planet.
1: Madison, thank you very much. Thank you. Madison Malone-Kircher is a reporter with New York Magazine. Now, when it comes to nourishing paranoiac beliefs through pop culture, one of the most iconic works would have to be the 1999 sci-fi political parable, The Matrix.
0: Help! Dodge this.
1: The Matrix is not a complicated story. A computer hacker, Neo, played by the ever-effervescent Keanu Reeves, journeys into a reality he didn't know existed and must battle the system of machines controlling all of humanity. The plot of the movie hinges around a choice Neo makes to take a red pill and to wake up from his
0: blissful ignorance. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Truth, huh? Not a trivial
1: promise. Max Reed is a writer and editor at New York Magazine and a frequent viewer of <laughs> The Matrix.
5: A scholar of The Matrix.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so what's red-pilling in the movie exactly, and what
5: has it come to signify? At this point, probably the most famous scene in the movie is the scene when Morpheus, the kind of sage, prophet, hacker, approaches Neo, our protagonist, and essentially implies that there's a big secret that he's got. The Matrix is
0: everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth.
1: Now, if you ask me, it's just a movie version of... The Illuminati, black helicopters, the deep state, and other silly reductive notions of sheeple in the thrall of unseeable
5: malign forces. I mean, I would go even further back than black helicopters and Illuminati all the way to the 2nd to 3rd centuries AD. I mean, what this is essentially is Gnosticism, which is a religious movement that arose uh, originally a couple hundred years after the birth of Christ that offers almost exactly the same proposal that the Matrix does, just they didn't have gel caps then, so there weren't pills. But the idea is that there is this truth that's hidden from the, as you say, the sheeple. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is
0: expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth.
5: You know, if you are adequately intelligent, if you are a truth seeker, if you are one of the chosen people, you can see that truth and you can seize it. And the internet has really seized on this as a particular kind of uh, way of thinking about and looking at the world. In particular, YouTube has this real affection for red-pilling as a concept and as a paradigm. The question is, what does it mean to be red-pilled in today's society? Well, quite simply, it means that
0: you no longer believe the mainstream narrative insofar as events are concerned and instead look for yourself for an actual explanation
5: as to what's going on. You know, if if you watch the news this week, you might have seen the congressional hearings about white nationalism on social media and a woman named Candace Owens was speaking.
4: They blame Facebook. They blame Google. They blame Twitter. Really, they blame the birth of social media, which has disrupted their monopoly on minds. They called this hearing because they believe that if it wasn't for social media, voices like mine would never exist.
5: She spent a lot of time making YouTube videos. I believe the title of her channel was Red Pill Black.
4: I want to be very clear on the takeaway here. The left thinks black people are stupid.
5: And her idea was that black Americans are being blue-pilled into following Democrats and they need to be red-pilled to awaken to the truth that Democrats are bad for African-Americans and that Republicans would be much better. You know, by and large, red-pilling has a sort of conservative or right-wing tinge online. Uh, Maybe the most famous instance is there's a forum on Reddit called just The Red Pill. In this case, red-pilling is discovering that feminism is a lie that's allowing women to take advantage of, you know, a bunch of poor... 14-year-old boys who are being lulled into complacency. But it doesn't necessarily have to be right-wing. You know, when I wrote a column about this, I looked into it and I found veganism was a red pill to a blue pill of some other diet. Anytime you feel like you are the sort of rebel speaking truth to power, and especially speaking truth to a power that is hidden that people can't see or understand, you might think of yourself as a kind of red pill warrior.
1: I don't want to elide too quickly over that subreddit, uh, the red pill, because uh, it's pretty vile. This is one of the foundational elements of the alt-right, the anti-feminist, misogynist, supposed men's right cohort, and for them, red-pilling can get positively violent, no?
5: Yeah, absolutely. One thing to think about is if you take the logic of red-pilling to its absolute conclusion, you know, as the matrix itself kind of demonstrates, you become justified uh, to take whatever action is necessary to wake people up from their sort of status as sheeple.
0: The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control.
5: So, you know, it becomes a place where other people are dehumanized, where other people are understood to be slaves or zombies or not understanding. And I don't think that the matrix itself makes people violent. I don't think that even thinking this way is a guarantor that people are going to act violently or negatively. But you can certainly see how if you are disturbed yourself, if you're unhinged, if you are alienated and otherwise sort of on the fridges, that taking up a a philosophy that tells you that you are the only person who gets it is going to lead you down some very dark paths.
1: What is it about the online universe that uh, allows this kind of pseudo-philosophy to flourish?
5: The structure of YouTube is such that you sign on to watch influencers and vloggers and YouTubers talk to you about their days, their worlds, to react to the news. This very channel is called Coach Red Pill. Why do you think it is? It's because I am telling you
0: things that I know that are radically different from what the mainstream is
5: saying. And you develop what researchers call parasocial relationships with these people, where you have this kind of paradoxical, distant intimacy with them, where you know them really well, where they're uploading videos once or twice a day, two or three times a day.
6: As many of you guys know, with my dog, Mr. Marbles, who is a chihuahua.
5: They feel like friends, they feel like people who are giving it to you straight, as compared to the sort of boring, institutional newspapers or magazines that have this kind of mediated view on the world.
1: But there's also, you know, reality because concentrated power in politics and on Wall Street aren't delusions. The Matrix came out in 1999 pretty soon because of actual events. It would be seen as especially prophetic.
5: Yeah. If you think of yourself as a sophisticated consumer of the news, I'd never fall for this red-pilling stuff. You have to remember that the media has failed over and over and over again over the last several decades. Representative government has failed. A lot of the institutions that we think of as representing us and representing the world to us have not done their jobs. So there is sort of an open marketplace for people who can speak directly in a way that makes sense, that is comforting. I think you don't just see this in YouTubers. I think you see this in the White House right now. What about Trump himself? Yeah, I mean, I think a huge part of the president's appeal to uh, people who vote for him is the sense that he is – a knowable person because you don't ever feel like you are getting something different when he is speaking in the dark, smoke-filled rooms versus when he's out there on stage. I mean, I think that's the exact same appeal of YouTubers. You have people like Trump or like PewDiePie or like Jake or Logan Paul, the people whose relationship to their viewers, one way of putting it is that they derive their authority from charisma rather than from appeals to fact or empirical reporting, that it's really all about the kind of personal relationships that they build with people And those personal relationships make them seem trustworthy in ways that it's much harder for big institutions to maintain.
1: So you know how when you're watching pharma commercials and this is going to cure or treat such and such disorder and then come the disclaimers and say that if you take this, you're almost certainly going to start bleeding through the eyes and your brain's going to melt and you're going to have sexual dysfunction and you're going to die. (laughs) Uh, What's the disclaimer for the red pill?
5: Well, I mean, look, in the context of The Matrix itself, the disclaimer is the red pill is hard, that you don't want to know the truth because the truth is going to be difficult. You now know how bad things really are. You now are obligated to fight against, you know, the bad guys. I think in the context of the real world, if you red pill yourself, you know, you're going to get socially isolated. That's certainly one of the side effects because you're going to become almost insufferable to spend time with. For most people, you are going to become obsessed with conspiracy theories and the ways in which the world has wronged you. You're going to spend way too much time online, almost certainly. And, you know, worst case scenario, you're going to end up friendless and alone. Friendless and
1: alone. I think I'll, I think I'll just take the erectile dysfunction, <laughs> i tell you the truth. <laughs> Max, thank you very much.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Max Reed is a writer and editor at New York Magazine. Coming up, Prince of Darkness or... Maybe just Earl of Darkness. Steve Bannon, the movie. This is On the Media.
6: On the Media, supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at indeedcom the media. That's indeedcom the media.
1: This is on the media. I'm Bob Garfield. The Matrix, of course, is science fiction purporting to reveal the dark forces that enslave us. (laughs) That is so 20th century. Now we have actual political kingmakers claiming the same thing. If Morpheus had floppy hair and wore three shirts, he would be Steve Bannon, the strategist and self-styled political philosopher who has seen the Matrix in what he calls the administrative state. He was Donald Trump's Iago. His Rasputin... Send in Steve Bannon. His Grim Reaper, Death in a Mask.
0: Hello, Donald. I have
1: arrived. But a new documentary takes a peek at the man behind the mask. Titled The Brink, the movie follows Bannon through his various battles after getting the heave-ho from the Trump White House. We join him at a low point, as his candidate, Judge Roy Moore, is upset in the Alabama Senate special election. We see him grooming hard-right congressional candidates for the midterms. We see him coalition-building among right-wing extremists in advance of the upcoming EU elections. Here, he's holding forth for journalists, here dining with fascists, and, oh yes, again and again, charming audiences coast to coast. Oh my God!
4: I'm so excited. Bill Bennett, Steve Bannon. Oh, I love him. Are you really excited? Oh my god!
1: Allison Clayman is the director and co-producer of The Brink. Allison, welcome to OTM. Thank you so much. I want to ask you about the relationships that he's cultivated in the press. Uh, He notoriously was the key leaker of information to Michael Wolff for his tell-all bestseller, Fire and Fury. Through your movie, we see him engage with Bloomberg's Joshua Green, Annie Carney, who at the time worked for Politico. Did we get the trailer? Yeah. Can I see the new trailer? Because I got sent it. Huh? Yeah, well, I'm looking at it right now. Fine. Just see it and then let me see it. And I got to get to Maggie. Maggie Haberman, White House reporter for The New York Times. After the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, where so many worshipers died, we see him texting Ken Vogel of The Times. From your perspective, are these relationships transactional? You know, are they a series of seductions? Is it a question of just keeping your enemies close? What do you make of that?
6: So I don't think he thinks that they're his enemy at all. I do think it feels very transactional. But I also think a lot of them do like him. He is like, yeah, I love journalists. You know, they're working hard. They're trying to do their job. They have information. They have networks. It's a great way for me to find information, too. And you can see blatantly he is planting or spinning stories the way he wants them to go out. And, of course, the journalists, you know, take it in. And then if they're doing a good job, they're not just doing Stenography, and others are tweeting every statement he's making, and you know, like it's almost like he's their beat.
1: There is this one scene, uh, fairly late in your film, with Paul Lewis of the Guardian, in which Lewis savages Bannon to his face for dog whistling anti-Semitic tropes.
0: Let me just say what Errol Morris said. He said Steve Bannon will doubtlessly say that his remarks were not anti-Semitic, but I would respectfully disagree. He knew what he was doing. He's suggesting that you're doing dog whistle anti-Semitism
1: here, and I that's just,
0: your modus operandi.
1: I just disagree with um, with Errol on
0: that. Is the term globalist uh, an anti-Semitic? Absolutely not. Coded anti-Semitism. No, I mean, there are people not. who would argue that it is. George Soros. I mean, that is widely accepted as an anti-Semitic trope. The use, the suggesting that George Soros is somehow all, all controlling. He's
1: influencing Europe. Everybody knows. I totally disagree with that. that. George Soros is the, sem- that's a is fact. the biggest. It's It's not
0: something to disagree
1: with because it is an anti-Semitic trope. Well, what? No, George. That's just because you stated doesn't mean true. The trope. idea that George, no, Soros George Soros is
2: controlling the world is massive. I didn't say controlling an the world. I said he's the,
1: he's the financier and back of the NGO. So you're unaware that many people will read that as being a nod and a
0: wink toward anti-Semitism. Absolutely not. I don't see that at
6: all. He was definitely like, I need to make sure I get it all in because, you know, Bannon's probably not going to want me back. But Paul filmed with him several times after that, actually, you know, much to his surprise. I think to me that's such a good reminder of this two-way street, and Bannon needs the press as well. You might be risking that he doesn't like you individually, personally. And look, Michael Wolf was still around. After Fire and Fury came out, in which a lot of the consequences of his participation in that book, it seemed like they were pretty embarrassing for for Bannon. That's what precipitated the sloppy Steve comments from Trump, who otherwise was not going for the jugular with Bannon in public.
1: So one could conclude that the guy is just so narcissistic, he wants attention no matter the cost to his dignity. But Bannon himself has another explanation— here he is with his confederate Rahim Kassam when they were at a, a sit down with a bunch of Euro fascists.
0: They're obsessed by us, at the obsessed. We've got to use that obsession, obsessed. right? The Atlantic writes a thousand word article today about like three meetings Steve took over the last few days, yeah. right? Trump taught me a great lesson. There's no bad media. The more the mainstream
1: media gets obsessed with this, yeah, it's going to be your biggest. It's going to be your biggest ally.
6: When Bannon's talking in that clip. The larger context of that is he's having a dinner with members of various far-right parties from France, Sweden, Belgium. And they were actually asking him, what could we do to strengthen our position in the future? And one of the things they talk about is to be successful at the upcoming 2019 May EU parliamentary elections. And what about the media? You know, should we have Breitbart for... Europe, should we have some kind of right-wing media organization that we start up?" And he was saying that actually the right-wing media, the model is becoming unsustainable. It's going to have to move entirely to a philanthropy model, because the advertisers have been fleeing.
0: It's through advertising still, through advertising. All the right-wing media, the top ten companies, by the end of the year, except for Fox, will be donor-based. And you'll have to have a donor come in and write a chart.
6: And in large part, it has been because of citizen and consumer outcry, this movement that notifies advertisers that they're appearing on these sites, and then they get the companies to block their ads from getting placed on these specific sites. And it keeps happening more and more. But where you can get traction and you don't need to pay for it is the mainstream media. And when he's talking about that, I really do think he's talking about especially constantly dominating news cycles. And I think, as they're talking about, you know, someone just writing an article about a few meetings Bannon held. Now again, I think it's worth figuring out what's happening at these meetings. But is there enough context provided in the articles? And again, the danger of those far-ranging interviews. Steve
2: Bannon joins me now from Rome. Anderson Cooper, last week. Mr. Bannon, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I wanna get to Obamacare a little bit later on, but let's just start with what the Attorney General Barr for a half hour,
6: live from Rome, you know, being asked about his thoughts on the Mueller report in 2020.
1: I was talking to a Spanish journalist, and I think I said honey badger, which, as you know, is one of my favorite phrases. I, was, I love oh, look, honey I badger. I think the president's going to be honey very, Honey badger aggressive. don't care. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, I, Bannon
6: was live from Rome in that interview, and the first question wasn't, so tell me about what you're doing in Rome. <laughs> like, it mm-hmm. was just, you know, okay, we have, we have Bannon here, let's ask him things. And I just don't think he's a figure that should be treated that way.
1: Now, I should say that your film ultimately is a most unflattering portrait of Steve Bannon uh, on many levels. It catches him pronouncing... Uh, Cavalry as cavalry and Zeitgeist as Zeitgeist, which I find delicious. (laughs) It's a global revolt. It's a Zeitgeist. We're on the right side of history. It catches him losing his temper. It catches him using the same condescending and vaguely sexist dad joke over and over when posing with women at events. Over here, get the middle. (laughs) Oh, okay. It catches Bannon breaking bread, as we discussed, with the worst of Europe's fascist firebrands. It catches him lying about the anti-Semitic bedrock of his uh, supposed movement. And maybe most importantly, it shows his candidate, Roy Moore, getting defeated in Alabama's special senatorial election, followed by Bannon and his handpicked candidates getting their asses handed to them in the midterm elections, mm-hmm. which he described as a referendum on the Trump presidency. So net-net, you know, not the greatest PR piece for him. On the other hand, in his calculus, attention is currency. He says so in your movie. We have to live off earned media,
0: right? We don't have enough money. The, this revolution we're trying to lead, we're not going to ha- We're never going to ha- be... We're not Soros, right? We're not going to have $18 billion to put in something. We're not
1: the cokes. We know he thinks that being in your film was a good bet. But I'm asking you, what does society gain from the brink? And what does it risk?
6: Of course, there can be a risk. This is something that I thought about every night when I went to sleep. But one of my biggest inspirations to make this was my relationship to the Holocaust and Holocaust legacy. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors, and— to me, it's, it's a real question for now, as I think there are a lot of parallels in this time for, you know, how does a society get to a place where these things can happen? The fact that, you know, people are writing about it and talking about it as you are and raising questions that are bigger than him. And experts, you know, the world's leading experts in, in populism, people like Cass Mudd, who all say, yes, this is a film that is exposing not just the tactics, the strategy, but what's going on right now, what's about to happen. I do feel like this is an intervention and it's a contribution because it was made with all of these concerns and questions, you
1: know, at the forefront. The movie's called The Brink. The Brink of What?,
6: I mean, I think we all can feel that. We are at the brink, the brink of what? Going from Brexit to the election of Donald Trump to ongoing climate disaster. Also, the wealth gap and the way that the rich are getting richer and the poor are not advancing. All of this is a real recipe for evil forces to be able to succeed. You know, I didn't want to be anything that felt like it was referencing just him, because I think the whole point of the film is a look behind the curtain, at a whole system. And big part of this system is how he uses the media. It's the kinds of hateful messages and cruel policies that he's willing to put forward, but also that it's heavily funded. And that for all of his talk about being for the little guy and trying to shake things up, it's very clear that his position is among the super-rich. And I think a figure like Bannon is only going to succeed as far as the whole system allows him to. And it's not just about the media attention. I think the media should be paying more attention to the money and holding it up against the rhetoric.
1: Allison, thank you very much. Thank you. Alison Clayman is co-producer and director of The Brink in theaters now. it for this week's show on the media is produced by alana casanova burgess michael lowinger Leia fetter john hanrahan and asta chatterveti we had more help from zandra ellen and sharina ang and our show was edited this week by our executive producer katya rogers our technical director is jennifer munson and jen the speediest of recoveries to you. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Bob Garfield.
0: On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the
1: John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.